The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. I'd like for you to remain standing, if you, if you would, for just a moment. Um, and I'm going to read uh, the... Uh, the text I, I selected to, um, to introduce this sermon series, I'm not going to be preaching from Ephesians 4, and I, I decided not to read the entire chapter. I really wanted you to hear again the gifts that God has given to us as a church. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, teachers. Why? To equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather, rather speaking, the truth in love we are to grow up in every way to him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together, held together by every joint which is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So good to see you this morning. And um, children can be dismissed to Children's Church um, we uh, want to continue to encourage uh, this um, in this kind of summer season of addressing uh, kind of um, baseline needs of the church. And so this series, the three R's um, having to do with continuous spiritual uh, renewal, continuous spiritual renewal. So uh, I'm going to start with a, a question that is um, really important uh, question. How many of you like to order an appetizer at a restaurant? <laughs> Favorite appetizers? Let's hear them. What are they? Chicken wings. Huh? Fried pickles. All right. All right. Shrimp. Yeah. 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 All right. What else? What else? Oh, yeah, spring roll. Very good. Now, how many of you, uh, when you're cooking dinner in your home, prepare an appetizer for yourself or your family prior to dinner? Oh, joyful. So good. I'm so glad to hear that. Not real? A bag of carrots. Now, I have one last question. How many of you wish the dessert cart was actually the appetizer? See that? That, uh, thank you, Matt Vessel. I see that hand. So I knew we could get some hands up in church today. It just had to be the, just had to be the right questions, right? Well, uh, importantly, I'm going to take you on a very brief tour of the history of the appetizer, because I think <laughs> that's what you all want to hear, probably. But you may not have known this, and if you search Wikipedia, you could have found out that uh, the appetizer actually goes back to ancient Greece and Rome, when 
people uh, would socialize while having little pieces of fruit or cured meat. And is that like spam, maybe? I don't know. Um, cheese, uh, cheese, fish, and olives. That would never get on my appetizer plate, I promise you. Um, but this, is, uh, this was how the host would stimulate the appetites of their guests as they waited for the main dish to be served. Now fast forward a number of years and uh, we land into um, wealthy Frenchmen who would often reflect their affluent lifestyles in their cuisine um, and their guests were offered fancy morsels while waiting for the revelation of a gourmet masterpiece. A gourmet masterpiece. And of course, the literal translation for the French name for appetizer is that name we all don't want to say because we know we're saying it wrong. Hors d'oeuvres. Hors d'oeuvres. Which, did you know, actually means outside of the masterpiece. Outside of the masterpiece. The meal was the masterpiece. But there was something that you would get, you know, prior to that to kind of wet your, wet your appetite. I would suggest judge every chef on the basis of the appetizer, right? That's a harsh thing to say, you know. Sorry, Rhonda's not in here. I would never do that, right? I would never do that to her. My point in this, though, is that this sermon will serve as an appetizer if you will, for this series on continuous spiritual renewal. Uh, I've prayed, um, I've prayed that our appetite for continuous spiritual renewal would be so stimulated that we desire the Spirit then to feed us the fuller gourmet masterpiece. But I need to send out a warning as I start. Uh, this series of sermons, quite honestly, will not give us the wow experience that like you might feel when you're at a hibachi grill and the guy's doing other things with the knives and stuff and then they do the, the whatever and the meal goes up in flames and it's all very exciting. Everybody claps on it. It's wow, you know, it's so great. This series of sermons probably aren't going to be like you hear the sizzling platter of fajitas you know coming up from behind you and you know your meal's about to be served and it's going to be delicious and good if that's what you think continuous spiritual renewal is about i hope to correct that over the next um 10 weeks or so and this really brings me to my first point of reflection this morning and that is israel's problem with idolatry is our problem as well. And, and a lot of this sermon series is going to be rooted in uh, the 10 Psalms of Psalm 80 through 89, which are Psalms about renewal and revival and why, God, have you turned your face from us? And what we learn over and again in Israel's history is that it was idolatry. It was idolatry. And I think the first idol um, is what we might call the idol of relevance. The idol of relevance. The the desire for the wow experience. Uh, we'll put the slide up on because I wanted at the beginning to give us a somewhat of a simple definition of spiritual renewal, which I think can be found in 
Eugene Peterson's book titled, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. If you wanted to say, what is continuous spiritual renewal about? It is about long obedience in the same direction. Now just imagine how tedious and boring the law of the Lord must have appeared to be to the children of Israel in comparison to the idols of the nations that they were very familiar with, had seen, you know, in Egypt and also in the Promised Land. Those idols were very exciting. They were relevant. They were tangible. They were within reach. It was an experience of sorts. But God had given the law to his people, and that law was a gourmet masterpiece. And had they followed it, God's face would have always been turned towards them and not away from them. But God did seem distant at times to Israel. While the other gods of the nations were so very relevant and relatable. But here is the God of Israel who wasn't just at a distance. But the path to him was very often difficult. It was not an easy thing to live under the law of the Lord. And so this idea that spiritual renewal, continuous spiritual renewal, is hard work done over long periods of time, not only cut against the grain of Israel and how they viewed the nations, it cuts against the grain of American church life as well. The nutritional habits of the evangelical church in America in many ways mirror the nutritional habits of Americans, and it is not good. It is not good. But if we are going to experience continuous renewal of the Spirit, we need to turn from the idolatrous thinking that renewal is about happy meals served upon the platter of relevance and instead surrender to the Spirit who in Psalm 81 is going to feed us with the finest of wheat and satisfy us with honey from the rock. But there's a flip side to this issue of Israel's idolatry and ours as well. Poor spiritual nutrition is not only found in the Happy Meal approach to church, it is also found in traditional church life in traditional church life as you read the gospel accounts you should pay close attention to the public prophetic ministry of jesus and here's why second temple judaism was the spiritual world that jesus was raised in and ministered in now you might remember from solomon when the temple was built up until its destruction, uh, Israel's temple was Solomon's temple. But then after exile and return, through the leadership of Nehemiah and others, a second temple was built. And it was that second temple that was part of the life of Jesus. And then in 70 AD, uh, the Romans tore it to the ground. So Jesus is swimming in the waters, if you will, of Second Temple Judaism. But something had happened about 160 years before the birth of our Lord. And what happened was a movement of reform. 
began within Second Temple Judaism. That movement was rooted in the idea of separatism. We know these reformers as Pharisees. So 160 years prior to the birth of Christ, this good movement of reform, calling Israel back out of idolatry and back to the law of the Lord, began... But as uh, the years and decades unfolded, Pharisaism uh, became a problem. Indeed, the very word Pharisee means to set apart or be separated. So when the movement began, it was focused on calling Israel back to the law of Moses. And the Pharisees did this by emphasizing their authority to interpret the law of Moses. They were strong believers, not only in a Jewish theocracy, but in oral tradition as well. And this becomes problematic. And you might say, well, what does this have to do with the church and continuous spiritual renewal? Well, just think about it. As Jesus takes up his role as a prophet, the primary focus of his prophetic ministry is on the Pharisees. And Jesus says things like this to them. You are worshiping God in vain. And he quotes to them from the prophet Isaiah. Well did Isaiah say of you hypocrites. The people honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You see, what had happened, and you're familiar with your Gospels, you know that the Pharisees were piling upon, you know, piling on upon pile rules and regulations that were not at all actually in the law of Moses, but through oral tradition and then through oppression, the people now are in bondage, not to an idol of relevance in some happy meal approach, the exciting wow experience of pagan idolatry, but the idolatry of tradition, the traditions of men, and not the commandments of God. And this is the sharp two-edged sword of God's word then that pierces and divides. And as it does, we have to ask ourselves, are we guilty of the indictment that Jesus leveled against the religious leaders of his day? Has the church actually left the commandment of God to hold to the traditions of men? And while it is true that we will not find continuous spiritual renewal and a happy meal approach to our faith, we also have to say that we will not find it in some bland, tasteless, joyless version of our faith either. Idolatry wasn't just found in pagan temples. According to Jesus, it was also found in the Jewish temple as well. But there's another concern that has informed my thinking about this series. Does the church even desire for the Spirit to feed them a gourmet masterpiece? Does the church even desire that? Do you wake up in the morning or sometime throughout your day 
and think about being fed with the finest of wheat or honey from the rock. I mean, who has time for the long, hard work that the Spirit might do if we were willing to patiently wait and prepare ourselves for Him? And and what if the church did take the time? What if COVID lockdown, or maybe another lockdown to come, who knows, is God's opportunity that he's giving to us to be quiet and still before him? Who knows what God might do if we turn from the idols of church life, whether that be happy meal relevance or traditional church life relevance, and we actually retrieved apostolic teaching, and we actually embraced the reproof that it would bring, and then we were determined to remain in it. This brings me to my second point, to encourage continuous spiritual renewal. Two aspects of our human existence must be aligned. One is our desires, and the other is our will. You might recall Jesus in the garden with his disciples in the garden of Gethsemane is encouraging them to watch and pray. And then he says this to them. The spirit is what? Willing. But the flesh is what? Weak. And while that is certainly true, I want to remind you, the flesh doesn't need to stay weak. Let me say it again. Our flesh doesn't need to stay weak. Jesus wasn't condemning us to a life of weakness. He is warning us, and he says, you're going to have a willing spirit, but remember, your flesh is weak. And what we see over and again with Israel is that they had a willingness in their spirit, but their flesh was so very weak, and they caved in and followed other gods that never satisfied. And this pattern of failure continued until one child of Abraham stepped on the scene He showed his people that the actions of the flesh could indeed match the desires of the Spirit. And that faithful Israelite was Jesus of Nazareth. He was the only one, right, willing to totally vanquish the flesh and bring it under submission so it served his spiritual desires, Listen to the writer of Hebrews who references Psalm 40 as he explains this about the life of Jesus. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Then, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The will and the desires to do what God willed were always rightly aligned in the physical body of Jesus. Let me say that again. This is such an important point. The will and the desires to do what God willed were always rightly aligned in the physical body of Jesus. And you know what? They can be aligned in us as well. We are not left to weakness For through the Spirit, continuous spiritual renewal can take place. So we need to retrieve a forgotten point of apostolic teaching. 
We do not have to serve the flesh and its sinful desires because Jesus has set us free from them. Listen, we're going to put it up on the board. I actually want you to read it with me. Hebrews 10, 19. I want you to read it with me. There, well, I'll give it just a second until it gets there. Let me know when it's there. We're there? No. All right. Hebrews 10, 19. There we are. Read it with me. Read it with confidence. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is a point of great hope for the church and we are going to spend time with this point as the series unfolds. Because listen, I know by personal experience, 62 years of my own humanity, I know that there are times when it looks rather bleak that we'll never overcome our flesh. It looks bleak. The shadows fall. The darkness gathers. And like Adam and Eve, we run for the bushes and hide from God. But what the apostles taught the church was to run to Jesus. Why? He's the only one who vanquished the flesh and aligned it rightly with his desires so that he actually did fully and completely the will of God. This is why we must look with faith to the true Israelite, Jesus, the faithful one. He is the gourmet masterpiece that the Spirit offers us today. He is the fulfillment of the hope of Isaiah, or excuse me, of Psalm 80. Let your right hand be on the man of your right hand, the Son of Man, whom you have made strong for yourself. That man, Jesus, not only had a willing spirit, he had an obedient flesh, and we need to retrieve this teaching because it is the good news of Jesus that you and I do not have to be driven by flesh, but our flesh can be submitted, and it can be renewed. And it can be redeemed. And it can be brought in obedience so that it matches desires to do the will of God. Of course, for Jesus, this obedience led him to a cross. And it was on that cross that he died. And it is in his death that our sins, our failures are paid for. It is completely true that Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. He made a way for us to come into fellowship with God. But as he paid for our sins, he also opened the door to a glorious life of fellowship with the living God. Can you imagine, and maybe you can and hopefully you will, that in this life we live right now, our lives which have desires and our bodies which carry out those desires can be rightly aligned so that our will then 
pushes through and we serve with our bodies the living God and we serve him in the body which he has prepared for us, the body he has given to us. And it is to be then a life of continuous spiritual renewal. Well, let me get to my last point then this morning. The language of spiritual renewal that we will see in Psalm 80 to 89 is the mother tongue of the apostles and of the church apostolic. You see, as the good news of hope in Jesus began to spread throughout the Jewish world and the Roman world, people are drawn to it uh, because of the promise inherent in it, the promise of love and forgiveness through Jesus. And yes, I do fear that we are losing not only the courage to speak those words of love and forgiveness, but to grasp their meaning. What does it mean to be loved by God? What does it actually mean to be forgiven by God? And then as we come to their meaning, we have to make a stronger effort to retrieve those words, to make clear their meaning in the church and then, of course, to remain in them. And so, well, how do we do this? Well, we have to go back to school. Now, we've got college kids in our room, and this may be the last Sunday for some of them. I don't know, but if so, God bless you as you go and have a wonderful semester ahead. You will be missed. But a number of students, right, are going back to school in about 30 days or so, and they don't like to hear. They don't like to see the back-to-school sales. They don't like any of that because it reminds them. But I want to tell you something, church. We must go to school, but it's the school of Christ. The school of Christ. Dr. Scott Swain, who is a professor at one of the Reformed Theological Seminaries, um, in a book I was reading by him, this wonderful little quote, I'll put it up on the screen for you because I, I do think there's so much truth in it. Because... The anointing of Christ dwells within the church. The church is the school of Christ. When you come to church, you're not coming just for a worship experience. You are coming to where the anointing of Christ dwells through His Spirit, through His words, the means of grace, the hope of glory. The church is the school of Christ. And I want to remind you that the church does not get to decide its curriculum. The church does not get to decide its curriculum. We are not in the business of choosing between the happy meal of relevance or the traditional meal of relevance. We are to hold fast to the historical transmission of apostolic truth under the rule and reign of Jesus, we are too, through the leading of the Spirit, make sense of it in congregational life. We are in the school of Christ. But of course, there is a big question then that looms over this. You see, Israel had a ministry of the Word as well. Right? They had teachers. They had a temple. And yet, failed to be transformed by it. And again, the question comes back, is this true of us as well? We have the gifts, but are we being transformed by them? 
What if it's true of us? What if there is a lack of transformation? What are we to do? Well, Psalm 86 presents the attitude that students will need to cultivate as they come into the church, which is the school of Christ. And this this little prayer, I think, sets up the series and it does put us on solid footing for the hope of continuous spiritual renewal. Psalm 86.1, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. For I am poor and needy. That is the attitude we need to be cultivating when we come into the school of Christ. The place where the anointing dwells. Uh, The truly amazing thing about the work of the Spirit through the Word is its ability to humble us or to harden us. The response of Israel all too often was to be spiritually hardened by God's Word. But you know, when Israel humbled themselves and they were shaped and formed by the law and the Psalms and the prophets... They would indeed flourish and prosper. And you know the same can be true of us. People sit under the sharp two-edged sword of the scripture and remain unchanged. I mean, think about this. There are people who spend their entire lives going to church because it's the traditional thing to do. And they remain unchanged. Some, though, do see themselves as poor and needy and ask the Lord to incline his ear towards them and they are changed. And and we have to keep asking ourselves, are we the Pharisee who says, you know, he's glad that he's not like those other sinners? Or are we like the tax collector who would not even lift up his head to heaven? He simply beats his chest and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Which are we? As we sit under the two-edged sword and the anointing of the Spirit here in the school of Christ. You see, a retrieval of our apostolic faith which was first delivered may only further harden some, but by God's grace, it will also be a source of life and renewal for others. And the difference is found in our willingness to surrender to it and receive correction from it and then remain in it. And so I ask, do we have time for the long, hard work that the Spirit might do? Are we willing to prepare ourselves for Him and patiently wait for Him? Well, there's just one little morsel left on our appetizer tray this morning, and it's a good one, so I don't want to leave it out because I want to be careful and clear up any misconceptions there may be about God's attitude towards us. And again, I'm going to put it, uh, it'll be put up on the screen. This is Psalm 86, 15. And in Psalm 86, 15, we find great hope for renewal this morning. I want you to read it with me. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, 
and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Read it again. Let the good news sink in. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I read through Tim Keller's reflections on the Psalms. I've been doing this for, since the book was published some years ago now, and I was reminded recently in Psalm 85, Keller writes that revivals um, always involve a fresh scene of the gospel of grace. And then he says you have to grasp it theologically and you have to know it experientially. And then he writes, we must wait on God listening faithfully to his word. I pray that not only today, but in the weeks to come, we will have a fresh scene of the good news of the gospel of Jesus and that as we move through this series, we will do what is so very challenging and that is to wait on God to see what God will do as we listen faithfully to his word. You see, my confidence for continuous spiritual renewal rests wholly on the character of a loving God which is revealed to us in his word. Waiting on the Lord as we listen is a hard thing to do. And you know what? It's probably the main reason why spiritual renewal is short-lived. We're impatient. And we don't like to do hard work. This was certainly true of Israel. They would not cultivate faithfulness over the long haul. But you know something? Their failure to be faithful did not deter God from being faithful to them. The failure of the church will not keep God from being faithful to us either. The merciful, gracious God who is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness is ready to meet us, ready to meet you right now in the quietness of our hearts at this table where we come to confess our need for him, where we come to eat and drink of the gourmet masterpiece that is indeed Jesus. And as we do then, let us with renewed spirits, now filled with hope, Pray, work, wait for continuous spiritual renewal. Let me pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We come, have come before it. It is a word that pierces and divides. And I pray that we might humble our hearts before it. And in doing so, that we might now be ready to respond to it in obedience. I would encourage you to be quiet before the Lord as you prepare yourself for his table, to be ready to receive it with faith and the blessing that is found in it. Let's be quiet before the Lord. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.